and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Newly appointed Attorney General Merrick Garland has said he will renew the Justice Department's focus on the threat of white supremacists. Eli Rosenbaum knows a thing or two about that ideology. For 40 years, he has helped the department track down and hold former Nazis accountable for their World War II crimes, a law enforcement role that has earned him the moniker of Nazi Hunter. Mr. Rosenbaum is with us now to talk about that moniker and that mission. Mr. Rosenbaum, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. Great to be with you. So, yes, you have been called the Nazi hunter. I've seen the show on Amazon Prime. But what does that term mean in real life? Well, it's not an expression I'm particularly fond of because it suggests that this mission is something other than what it is, which is professional law enforcement. We are not engaged in hunts or anything of the sort, but we have been for four decades now aggressively investigating and taking legal action against participants in Nazi-era crimes against humanity. Your father escaped Nazi Germany in 1938, I believe. Can you share a little bit about how your family history inspired this work? Yeah, my dad got out of Germany, lived in Dresden with his brother and his parents, and they managed to get visas to this great country and were able to escape in 1938. As the Attorney General Merrick Garland said in his recent testimony, I think all the time about how the United States saved my family. My father graduated high school in Newark, New Jersey, and then uh, started paying back the United States by going into the United States Army. And he was sent to North Africa and to Europe and served in the 3rd Infantry Division. And then when they realized that they actually needed German speakers, they uh, transferred him to a psychological warfare branch unit in the U.S. 7th Army. The incident that changed my father's life and had a big impact on me, I'm sure, was when he was sent to the Dachau concentration camp by his commanding officer to go there in a jeep with two other men to see what the Army had found the previous day when they liberated Dachau. Word spread quickly in the region that something terrible was there, and my dad's CO wanted to know what it was. So my father went when I was 14 years old, and we were driving on the New York State Thruway in a blizzard, heading north, and there was nothing left to listen to on the radio. We were talking, and I loved hearing my dad's war stories, especially the funny ones. Anybody who serves in the military has some funny stories, be it about the food or whatever. And then suddenly he said, you know, I was sent to Dachau the day after its liberation. And I go 14, and though it was a time when there wasn't much said really about the Holocaust, I knew what it was. And I said, what did you see? And I'm like my father staring out the front window because it's pretty treacherous driving. And I don't hear anything from my father. And I look over to the driver's seat and there I see dad with his eyes glistening, they're welled with tears and his mouth is open and he's trying to tell me and he couldn't speak. And it was the first time I ever saw my father cry. Men of that generation didn't want anyone to see them cry usually. And we never did speak about it. So my beloved father lived you know, into this new century and so many, many decades. And we did speak about my work with frequency when I was home, but we never returned to the subject of Dachau. 
you say you talked about your work with your father. How did that conversation or the job evolve over the course of 40 years? Sure. The work has changed quite a bit. When I started actually as a summer intern back in 1979, never imagining that this would become my life's work, we were overwhelmed with investigations. We had inherited the responsibility from the former Immigration and Naturalization Service after the attorney general took it away from them because they had not succeeded. And he set up this new office, the Office of Special Investigations in the Justice Department Criminal Division. And we had more work than we could really keep up with. And it turned out in the first few years that the allegations we had inherited that actually had the most merit were ones that were based on tips received directly or indirectly from foreign governments which at that time was to say mostly the Soviet Union, occasionally another government, but generally the, the Soviet Union, which had mixed motives in these cases. We started being very proactive within a few years, and by the five-year point and thereafter, nearly all of the cases that we could develop to the point of prosecution were ones that we had initiated on our own. And the methodology for that was to task our staff historians. We were the only law enforcement entity in the entire hemisphere that had its own complement of historians. They were the people who could dig for the needles in haystacks. And we tasked them with responsibility for keeping an eye open for the surviving remnant of Nazi personnel records and other documents that identified perpetrators or potential perpetrators. This they did with great success, and ultimately we assembled more than 70,000 names of suspects, mostly European, also some Japanese, and we ran each of those names one by one against U.S. immigration records and sometimes other records in an effort to see if we could determine whether any of those people came here, assuming they hadn't changed their names. And that was pretty complicated, actually, because of the fact that Cyrillic names, for instance, can be transliterated in many ways. But we ran those names and we got a surprising number of matches. And then the investigation began in earnest and we ultimately brought over 130 cases. And there was a time when we would have 20 cases in court or more at the same time. Today, of course, it's very different. There isn't as much proactive work to be done. We've mined most of the information that we could find, and very few of the perpetrators are still alive. That scenario, I suppose, is exemplified by the case that was recently in the news that we won this past month, ultimately the case of Friedrich Karl Berger of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, who was a concentration camp guard during World War II, and we proved in court that he guarded prisoners in a subcamp of the Noyengama concentration camp who were worked under very inhumane conditions. Many, many perished. Uh, we proved that he took part on the death march from this subcamp in Meppen, Germany, or near Meppen, Germany, back to the main camp of Noyengama. But that may well be our last Nazi case. We'll see. We have some investigative activities still underway. Now, I want to point out that you said your department pursued prosecution of 130 cases. You successfully prosecuted 109. That's more than all other countries combined. Can you tell us a little bit more about the Berger case and how, after all this time, you found him? 
I think what I can say right now is that this was the result of a partnership with Ludwigsburg. I don't think I can go into further detail at this time, but it's in the public record that the original lead on Mr. Berger was the examination of information that was found in 1950 when a series of more than 2,000 personnel cards, German personnel cards, wartime personnel cards, which turned out to be personnel cards for Noyangama concentration camp system guards, were salvaged from a cargo ship that had been tragically bombed by the British Royal Air Force just before war's end on May 3, 1945, along with another ship. But five years after this particular ship, the Thielbeck, sank, German police salvaged it and found these cards and copied down information that was on them. And over 1,500 guards could be identified. It turned out that of the more than 1,500, perhaps only two were alive, one of them being in the United States, Mr. Berger. When you finally track these suspects down, do they express remorse for what they did? Great question. I've been waiting for over 40 years to hear an expression of remorse from one of our suspects or defendants. Usually what you hear is denial. It's not me. I wasn't there. Me, a guard at a death camp? Never. Or they say, I had no choice. wasn't my idea to persecute these people, but I was assigned to do it and I did it. And when you ask them, well, it was bad, and they say yes, and we say, well, did you ask for a transfer to another assignment to, say, a regular military assignment, they always say no, or that they didn't think they would get a transfer, though transfers were easily obtainable, as we have proved in our case this time after time. But I have thought about what I would say if one of these people were to express remorse. I've questioned quite a few of them myself. And I decided that if anyone ever said that, I would say, well, it's very good to hear that, but you are expressing your apologies to the wrong person. You need to apologize to your victims. And unfortunately, few, if any of them, are alive. Was that difficult to hear, that absence of remorse, especially given your personal connection and the emotional impact it had on your father? I don't think it's affected my work in questioning suspects. That's a unique undertaking when you prepare as much as you can and then you are focused like a laser beam on what the other person is saying and trying to lead them to the truth as best you can. And you have to be not only proactive, but very reactive to what they're saying. The substance of what they're saying, if they do make admissions, usually doesn't hit you till hours later when you come down from that experience. Did being Jewish make a difference? I've not spoken about this before. I will say that it did affect how I felt I was perceived in this work. I don't know a better way to put that. I can't begin to tell you, Manya, how many interviews I've given over the years in which journalists haven't had the nerve to ask me, are you Jewish? Which they usually can surmise if they haven't, you know, actually established it from my name, you know. But they'll say, well, you know, do you have any special reason to be interested in these cases? Do you have any family connection to these cases? Why were you so sensitive? I thought people would assume that I was not acting fairly and professionally in this work, that somehow I was applying some standard other than those that we customarily employ in the Department of Justice, that we proudly employ. I feel strongly that we've adhered to those standards and that I've 
done whatever I can to make sure that people who worked under me on these cases understood that that was the policy. I've been known to say at staff meetings that when I was the head of OSI that I want everyone to remember that we represent the people. And in a way that includes our suspects and our defendants, we work for them too. We are trying to get the truth and we will prosecute them. If the facts and the law are there, we need to respect their rights and we need to do everything by the book. Have you delivered the news to survivors that the man or woman, you you prosecuted both, right? The man or woman that victimized them or their family members has been caught. Yes, I and colleagues have had the experience of reaching out to survivors and delivering the news. And I can think of any number of instances in which that happened. For me, most movingly, it wasn't the survivor herself because she had passed away, but it was her daughter. And I had believed by the time that happened, which was years after we successfully prosecuted the case, that no one from that family had survived. And it was a great joy to learn that one person had survived and made her way to South America and then finally to speak with her daughter and to be able also to share with the family the documents we had found about the fate of the family in Europe. They were very sad documents involving, among others, a six-year-old girl by the name of Fruma Kaplan, whom I had spoken of in many, many speeches over the years that she had no burial place. She was buried in a pit with thousands, 50,000 or several pits, 50,000 other Jews in Ponar outside of Vilnius or Vilna, Lithuania. And then to find that one member of that family had survived and to speak with, if my memory serves, ultimately the great niece of this six-year-old girl who was shot to death was beyond moving, beyond moving. I bet. In answer to your question about women, One of the more interesting cases we brought was against a San Francisco resident by the name of Elfrida Wrinkle. And another attorney and I made an unannounced visit to her home, something that we did with some frequency. I did the first one back in 1982 when I persuaded my boss that we should comport ourselves the way other law enforcement agencies do. We should go interview suspects, not send them letters all the time, inviting them to come and see us. And I want to point out that contrary to the popular image of Nazis being elderly, decrepit men, back then our subjects were on average much younger. And the first person I interviewed was all of 61, was still working, which is to say he was younger then than I am now. The woman in in San Francisco had been a guard and a dog handler at the notorious Robinsbrook concentration camp. And I will always remember when We walked in when she agreed to let us in and explained in some detail what we wanted to discuss. She walked out of the room and came back with a small photograph that she wanted us to see. And I kind of thought I knew what that was going to be because I had Googled her name and I had seen the obituary of her husband, who was Jewish and a refugee from Nazi Europe. And so what she brought out was a photograph of his tombstone. She said nothing. She just handed it to us. It was a very large tombstone in a Jewish cemetery, a big Star of David, Amagin David at the top, and on the left side, his name and his birth and death years, and it said, Husband of Elfrida, and on the right side, clearly space left for her name and particulars to be engraved. And we asked her about her wartime experiences, and she admitted to some of what she had done, and I eventually asked her if she had ever told her husband, 
And she said yes. But later, after she was deported, she gave a news interview and gave an answer that I thought more likely, which is no, she never told. You talked to your father about your work. Did you talk to your daughters? (laughs) I waited a while before I spoke to my girls about what daddy was doing for a living. I did used to worry that, you know, having all the uh, books that I use in my work around the house might have a problematic impact. And, you know, I used to imagine one of my kids not knowing what this is all about would go to school and draw a swastika, you know, and I'd get a call (laughs) from the principal. Uh, Fortunately, that didn't happen. You mentioned that Mr. Berger may be the last Nazi, though there are still some active investigations. What does that mean for the future of your division at the Justice Department? Our office, now called the Human Rights and Special Prosecution Section, here in the Justice Department Criminal Division in Washington, still active in the Nazi cases, as we demonstrated this past couple of weeks in the Berger case, but also in a much bigger way because of the actuarial realities in cases of post-World War II human rights violators who've managed to find safe haven in the United States. And the government is determined to end that safe haven, and we have successfully prosecuted people who have committed crimes in places uh, like Bosnia and Guatemala and Liberia and on and on, a, a tragically long list of countries in which crimes against humanity and genocide and other crimes have been committed. So we are hard at work on those cases, trying to apply the lessons we've learned in pursuing Nazi cases. Lessons learned. You mentioned lessons learned. And you mentioned Merrick Garland, who was confirmed this week. What lessons have been learned in this 40-year pursuit of Nazi-era criminals that can be applied to what he says will be the department's focus on domestic terrorism? I mean, many of these terrorists share the same ideology as your suspects. What can be applied to curb the threat on our soil? We've certainly learned the lesson that is a lesson that is not a new one. And the nice way of saying it is that the pen is mightier than the sword. The perhaps not so nice way is saying that words can be very dangerous in the hands of people with malign intent. I well recall that we brought a number of cases against Nazi propagandists who came to the United States, who in the old country had helped create climate of opinion in which Nazi depredations against Jews and gypsies and others were, if not accepted by larger populations, there at least was little attempt to intervene and to bring those crimes to an end. We certainly have to do a better job of teaching tolerance and teaching kindness. So the principal obligation is on our parents and teachers. I will tell you the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my job was to go and teach one day three elementary school classes on the subject of tolerance. Tolerance does not come naturally to children. And it was also the most satisfying thing I've probably ever done in my career. Mr. Rosenbaum, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Manya. It's been great to be with you. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Shira Lowenberg, the director of AJC's Asia Pacific Institute. Shira, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat Table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? It's good to be with you. Thank you. This week, what I'll be talking about at my Shabbat Table is the conversation I had just yesterday with Sammy Samuels, who's the head of Yangon's Jewish community in Myanmar. Sammy joined AJC for an exclusive Advocacy Anywhere Insiders briefing 
to share his direct experience and observations from Yangon, where he lives, of the ongoing protests throughout Myanmar in opposition to a military coup that occurred on February 1st of this year. On February 1st, the leader of the National League for Democracy, Aung San Suu Kyi, and Myanmar's president, Win Mint, were arrested, and the military took control of the government. Since that date, there have been some 2,000 others that have been detained, including NLD officials, journalists, and civilians, and more than 50 deaths reported. Protests are not new to the people of Myanmar, who lived under military rule for more than 30 years, beginning in 1962. The people of Myanmar have seen some change since 2008, when the military ceded some power to a civilian-led government, and there had been very high hopes inside the country and in the West for Myanmar being on the road to full democracy. I led an AJC delegation to Myanmar in December of 2016, and I can tell you that the mood in the country at that time and in the international community was extremely hopeful. Those hopes were dashed with last month's military coup. Now, there's a lot of Burmese history to what brings us to the present day. But for the Shabbat table, the point that I'll make is that we must do more than hope for better days ahead. We must act. AJC and the Jacob Blaustein Institute had been calling upon the U.S. government and the international community to impose targeted sanctions against Burmese military leaders in response to a previous crisis. The credible reports of a genocide perpetrated by the military against the Rohingya minority in 2017. Today, we must continue these efforts to rally the United States and the international community to condemn the Myanmar military regime for its actions against its people and impose damaging sanctions. We must join the brave people of Myanmar who are marching and striking and speaking out, putting their lives on the line and call for the restoration of democracy. As the numbers of arbitrary arrests increase, as the death toll rises, as reports of repression continue, the military junta must not be permitted to act with impunity. As we approach Passover and reflect upon our journey from slavery and oppression to freedom, my hope is that the people of Myanmar, too, have a similar path to freedom in the days ahead. Shira, thank you for keeping us attuned to what's happening abroad. At our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the faraway land of Texas, where shops and restaurants have removed the signs from their doors mandating masks. The plexiglass shields guarding customers and clerks from each other's germs have been dismantled. I have been fuming this past week about the removal of the mask mandate there. It's been over a year since my children have seen their grandmother, aunt, uncle, and cousin. Over two years since they've seen the blue bonnets that bloomed early when my father died. His yard site is Tuesday. This inevitably prolongs our separation, though with any luck, my family soon will be vaccinated and able to travel our direction, wearing masks. That's unlikely to happen in time for Passover, when so many other families are preparing to break their fast from each other. Which brings me to the Kosher Palette, a popular kosher market in Dallas. Upon learning of the reprieve, the shop's owners immediately informed their customers they could leave their masks at home. With the Passover holiday starting at the end of this month, observant and non-observant customers flocked to the kosher palette to stock up on specialty items. The timing seemed perfect, but was it? Enter Rabbi Ari Sunshine, I love that name, a Dallas rabbi and a regular customer at Kosher Palette, who loves food. Seriously, he even opened his Yom Kippur sermon this past year talking about food. He picked up the phone and called the shop's owners to share his concerns. Many members of his community and others might not feel safe in their tiny store if masks were not required. 
The store's owners might not get that shot in the arm they counted on from the Passover rush. In fact, it might even hurt their business. When you have a good relationship, you pick up the phone and talk about it, Rabbi Sunshine told a reporter for JTA. The rabbi also called the organizer of a Jewish event in Dallas, where people plan to gather on Saturday for sushi and a mask burning, which at a Jewish event, frankly, makes the rabbi uncomfortable. I'm from Texas. I understand the appeal of a bonfire. It makes me uneasy, too. Each exchange was pleasant, even if it didn't change minds. The grocery had already received enough complaints to reverse its decision by the time the rabbi called. Still, the fact that he called impressed me, so I called Rabbi Sunshine for a little perspective. He encouraged me not to get worked up about something I can't control. Instead, redirect your energy, he said. Be a little more cautious. Be patient a little longer. I asked him what the isolation of the pandemic and now the tensions around emerging from that isolation can teach us about the value of relationships. Our world has become much smaller, he said, as we're all going through the same terrible situation together. Recognizing how closely tied we are to everyone around the world, we should be more open to seeing them, hearing them, recognizing where they're coming from, even when the approach is different from ours. I took a deep breath. I knew he was right. I called my mom. I FaceTimed with my nephew for another dose of sunshine. We all could use some of that these days. Next year in Texas. Sefi? A player on the NBA's Miami Heat named Myers Leonard called someone a kike this week. But you wouldn't know that if you read the New York Times. The paper of record reported on the incident, of course, which is major sports news and led to Leonard being fined and suspended. The Times article begins as follows. Myers Leonard, a reserve center for the Miami Heat, will be away from the team indefinitely, the team said Tuesday night, following his use of an anti-Semitic slur while he was playing a video game on a public live stream. But the article never gets more specific than that. At no point did the Times say what anti-Semitic slur it was that Leonard used. I have to wonder if this self-censoriousness is spurred by the decision last month to fire longtime reporter Donald McNeil, who two years ago in an incident that just came up again, reported by the Daily Beast, spoke the N-word aloud while discussing its offensiveness with a group of teens whose families had paid thousands of dollars for them to travel to Peru with Mr. McNeil. During the saga, Dean Bacay, the executive editor of the Times, initially said that the Times won't tolerate offensive language, quote, regardless of intent. This prompted a great deal of ridicule as cursory searches of the Times website reveals that its articles, even recent ones, regularly use the N-word, appropriately, to refer to times when the racist slur has been used. Piquet eventually walked back his comment, affirming that intent does matter. But I'm left to wonder whether it was that high-horsed position that mean words should never be printed, ever, regardless of intent, that compelled the Times to decline to tell the full story in this instance. It's striking, I think, that I, a Jewish person, upon reading in the Times that my people had been defamed, couldn't learn from that same source exactly what it was that had been said. There's a certain viciousness to words like kike or the N-word that simply cannot be conveyed by saying that someone used a slur. We who wish to be informed about these incidents, we should have to grapple with the full weight of the offense, and that means seeing the term itself. That might prompt some further important questions. 
Is this a word that Leonard uses often? What prompted him to use it the other night? What about NBA players in general? Do they know this term? Do they use it? How do we feel about that? Robbed of the full brunt of the slur, we don't ask those questions, and the discourse and examination that an incident like this should prompt doesn't take place. How sad. The ending of this particular story, however, is a little less sad. Leonard was fined and suspended, yes, but he issued an apology, and Jewish NFL player Julian Edelman posted a beautiful open letter on his Twitter account, writing, quote, Most likely you weren't trying to hurt anyone or even profile Jews in your comment. That's what makes it so destructive. When someone intends to be hateful, it's usually met with great resistance. Casual ignorance is harder to combat and has greater reach, end quote. Edelman closed, saying, quote, I'm down in Miami fairly often. Let's do a Shabbat dinner with some friends. I'll show you a fun time. Well, my Shabbat dinners are always a fun time, and I'll be talking about this incident and that letter at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.